Being an expert sucks. As a teacher of spiritual intelligence and emotional health, I get cornered into being the guy who has all the answers. I'd like to take this opportunity to make a confession. I don't. What I do have are convictions. I have theories. I have questions. I find myself looking around and I'm like, we can't stay here. Stop setting up your tent. We can't stay here. Through my journey, it's become evident that being a participant is no longer enough. It's time to become reformers. These are my confessions. To get deeper in this conversation, visit MikeMayashiro.com. Hello and welcome to today's episode. Um, you're listening to the Confessions of a Reformer podcast and I'm your host, Mike Mayashiro. And today I've got a special guest on, you guys, it's a return guest, someone I hope to have multiple interviews with because this person has some insane stuff to share. <laughs> um, so listen, in today's episode, we are going to be talking about a new age rock that's going to come up at some point. Um, we'll talk about anthropology and matter holding memory. Ooh. And also just, yeah, just like how your worldview affects how you're able to perceive and experience the spirit realm. I do want to warn you guys. There, this person is quite theatrical and demonstrative. The projection of their voice is impressive. And when they tell stories, sometimes things get crazy. So, I, And that is going to happen on this episode. So I want to let you know there are going to be moments where there's going to be a loud popping sound. Um, hopefully, we're going to be able to edit most of that out and diffuse it a little bit. But I think there's still going to be a bit of a punch to it. So just be prepared for that. It might be a, bad, a good idea not to listen to this with headphones, maybe. Um, or at least you can do that until he gets to the Hawaii story. But at some point, we're going to start talking about uh, an experience he had in Hawaii, and that's when things get wild. So um, just be mindful of that. Uh, and there are other moments too. But anyway, so listen at your own risk. But trust me, these stories are worth hearing. I'm really excited, you guys. Um, let's get into it. Hello, and welcome to our next episode of Confessions of Reformer. I'm your host, Mike Mayashiro, and you guys have got a guest back on today that we've had before. Listen, I think today is going to be a wild ride, so please buckle up and uh, get ready to have some problems, maybe. I don't know if that's how this is going to go, but I just want to throw this giant disclaimer out there. Okay, listen, it's Ken Fish, you guys. Ken Fish is back. When he was on my podcast last time, we talked about deliverance and demons and that kind of thing, right? So Ken was in Reading, is in Reading at the recording of this, and I gathered my team last night. He came over. He taught us for three hours and delivered us for two more. People from my team, uh, there were probably five of them or whatever, right? Ken basically did deliverance on people on my team and then trained the rest of us on what he was doing, how and why, which was incredible. We don't get a ton of training on deliverance. I've been seeking this for probably seven years now. I'm just wanting to know more and some practicals, and I just haven't got a ton of great answers on this, and which is funny given the environment that I'm in. But um, thankfully, because of people and us having connections, we got connected and I've gotten to hear so much from Ken that I'm like, this is crazy. This is so helpful. I've never heard this before. And so to see it in action last night was fascinating because here's the story. These people I've been mentoring for anywhere between six to two years or whatever, right? And so we know each other. We do life together. This is my team, right? And so when he's coming at them and they're like, you know, hunching over or screaming or <laughs> whatever's going on. That's kind of a wild experience to observe that. A bunch of us are crying in the room, watching someone we're close to whom we love getting you know, delivered of demonic oppression or whatever. Um, so Ken isn't just like someone who teaches on this stuff. He does the stuff, which I have such mad respect and appreciation for. So I want you guys to know, whatever we talk about today, it's coming from 
experience. The guy is in the trenches doing this all the time with lots and lots of people. I know he has better understanding of the numbers than I do, but this is not theory, which is what I love. He's coming at us from like the field, you know, actually being out there. What is it like on the front lines kind of thing? So again, with an interview, the disclaimer is Ken gets to say whatever he wants. I'm not going to like try and curb his theology or his attitude or his opinions. I want him to get to just share whatever he has to say, whatever he believes, whatever he's convicted by. And then the rest of us just get to work it out. Like if we get offended, that's on us and we get to sort through that, right? If we get provoked, if we get inspired, like that's between us and the Lord, we get to work it out. I want Ken, like any interview I'm doing, I want the guests to be able to say whatever they want, right guys? So we're giving permission to say whatever we want. Ken, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, it's great to be back. <laughs> it's great to have you. Listen, I've got our last chat. We talked about deliverance and whatever, and there's a lot of great surrounding information you and I chatted on the phone a few times before that mm -hmm. podcast interview, and there were some questions I had for you, some things we talked about you told me just to remind you of later. I wanted to talk to, those, talk to you about those now and let the audience get to hear some of this. Um, and I know some of these are going to get a little interesting, so let's start with one that's maybe not so controversial, if that's the word. Um, you told me to remind you about a story where a woman bought a rock from a new age store. I don't remember what all the details were surrounding right. the story other than I was like, oh, I'm going to need to hear that. So why don't we kick it off with what's the story with this woman and the rock? Well, the moral of the story is never have a pet rock. No, <laughs> <Okay>. just kidding. <laughs> remember when that was a thing? Or maybe I'm oh, dating yeah, myself. Oh, no, you're right. Yeah. I remember that. All right. Well, anyway, so this story happened in Sydney, Australia. And uh, there was a young woman, and I don't remember now, but I want to say she was like 26 or 7 years old, right in there. Um, and she and her mother both came for prayer. And the, the young woman is the one I want to focus on. Mom got delivered too, but the, the young woman uh, had all kinds of food allergies and digestive problems and migraines and uh, breathing problems. So she was, her issues had issues. And you know, we started to pray and it just, we weren't getting any traction. And one of the things that's sometimes annoying with deliverance is you're praying all the right stuff, but nothing seems to be happening. Of course, I'm sure nobody who's listening to this podcast has ever had that problem, <laughs> but I do sometimes. So, you know, I'm like, what's going on here? And so, and she was really in a bad way. She'd been in and out of the hospital and, you know, they were trying to medicate her and, you know, they'd done scope analysis of her digestive system and they just couldn't figure anything out. So I was getting ready to leave Australia and fly home. And I, I did something that I don't really do very much of ever. And I'm essentially doing none of it now because if I did, I would never, ever have any time for anything else. And what I agreed to do was to see her on Skype when I got back to the United States. Mm. Because you can do deliverance by Zoom or by Skype or FaceTime. Yeah, we saw that last night. Yeah. Yeah, it worked really well, didn't it? It was epic. She was probably the most powerful of the lot. Agreed. She yeah. was the most dramatic. Yeah. yeah. So um, you can do it. It's always better in person, but when you can't, you can't. So I get back to the United States, and when I'd met her and her mother, we'd met at, I don't know, whatever the meeting place was, and we'd prayed, and okay, it was what it was. But when I got back to the United States, we launched the video feed and we are starting the prayer time. And one of the questions I'd asked her was, I said, do you have any involvement with anything having to do with alternative religions, new age, anything like that? No, I'm not involved in anything like that. And I'm, okay, fine. So I just took it at face value. But as soon as she and her mom pop up on the video, I'm looking at my screen and right over her head is a yin and a yang sign. 
Now this is the one that you see it everywhere. It's black and white and it looks like it has an S and they put the white dot in the black field and the black dot in the white field. It's actually a symbol of, of the religion of Taoism, which most Americans would say Taoism, but it's the right way to say it in Chinese is Taoism. So it's, it's a prominent symbol of Taoism. So she's got a yin and a yang. And then um, she also had a many-handed goddess from India. So she had a, an idol in her home. And then I could see on her bookshelf, right behind her, I could see all of these books. And I, I'm, it was a good enough video feed. I could literally read the titles. And I mean, she's got everything there. She's got the Kama Sutra. She's got the Tibetan Book of the Dead. I mean, you name it, she's got it. So I'm looking at all this, and I said, what do you do for a living? She goes, well, I'm a massage therapist. And I'm like, okay. And, you know, she'd been very clear. I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus and all that. But I'm looking at all this stuff, and I said, well, you know, you're actually doing stuff you shouldn't be doing. And she kind of bristled at that. She goes, well, what are you talking about? Well, I'm not doing anything wrong. I said, well, actually, all of that stuff that you have is exactly what I asked you about when I was still in Sydney. And you've got you've got a yin and a yang, you've got a Hindu idol, you've got all these books that are... She goes, well, I'm a massage therapist and my clients expect it. And I said, well, irrespective of if they expect it, you shouldn't be having it. And, you know, she didn't like it. And I said it about like that. I was trying to be kind, but I, I had to be direct about it. I said, I'm sure that a lot of your digestion and other problems is coming directly out of that. She goes, that's ridiculous. And I said, well, Actually, I don't think it's ridiculous at all because I've seen a lot of people get free when they get rid of all that stuff. So anyway, she's somewhat resistant and her mother says to me, look, I'll take care of this. So we end the call. And about a week later, they want to get back on the call and we get back, we, we reinitiate and they've had a big house cleaning and all that stuff is gone. Well, now we start making traction, but after a bit, we, we hit a blockage. So with that, I just said... Um, what is that behind you on your shelf? Because again, I can see her in the video feed, I can see her room. She goes, well, that's, that's just a rock. And I said, where did that rock come from? And she said, uh, well, why do you ask? I said, well, I'm asking because I think that rock is what we would call an object of interest. Or, you know, like they say in criminal investigation, a person of interest. Okay. This is an object of interest. <laughs> because of how it looked? Wait, how did you know this object? I just had a sense. Okay. Call it a word of knowledge. Okay. So she says, well, I got it in a, in a New Age bookshop. And I said, why did you buy a rock in a New Age bookshop? You're a Christian. What are you doing with that? And she says, well, I liked it. I said, well, there's a lot of things we might like, but you, you, can't, you can't just go to anything that you might be attracted to because at the end of the day, if you're a Christian, you're sworn as a pure virgin bride to Jesus. And, and with that, you have to get rid of a lot of this stuff that is syncretistic. I said, you're involved in all kinds of religious activity. You just cleaned a bunch of it out, but you're, you've got stuff going on still yet that's a problem. I said, why did you get that rock? She goes, well, it was really interesting. You know, when I picked it up, I could feel energy coming out of it. I said, oh. I said, that wasn't a warning to you in a New Age bookshop? And she said, well, I liked it. It, it was comforting to me. I said, no, 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 but if you're feeling energy coming out of a rock in a New Age bookshop, what that's telling you, and there's a, there's a technical term that anthropologists use, I said, what, what you're telling me is that rock has mana, not manna, like what, you know, what they ate in the wilderness, but mana. 
and it's a term that anthropologists use to describe objects which have power in them. And it's a well-known, documented phenomenon in the field of anthropology. Not every object has mana, but some are, as we might say, charmed objects or cursed objects or blessed objects or whatever. And for those who are attuned to these things, they will sense the energy or the power that is associated with whatever that thing is. When an anthropologist says a rock has power, do they have a more specific scientific term for power? or Mana. Mana is spiritual power, but they don't... Re remember, Mike, most, most anthropologists aren't believers, mm. and they don't necessarily have a supernaturalist worldview. Do you find anthropologists being superstitious? Not usually. Okay. Most of them are very... I mean, they're either agnostic or atheist, the mm. vast majority. But every now and then you'll run into somebody who really knows their stuff. One of the best is uh, a guy who used to teach at the University of Chicago, which is a you know, first-tier, top-flight university. Um, and he was Romanian. He's dead now. But his name was Mircea or Mircea Eliade. M-I-R-C-E-A-L-E-E-L, sorry. E-L-I-A-D-E. And he writes about some of these things. And there are others, but, but he, I think, is one of the best. So these objects, are they saying that these objects were intentionally imbued with mana or they were naturally already existing that way? Or how does that happen? Well, the way an anthropologist would report it is we make, no, uh, we make no judgment or claims about why these things appear to be this way. What we report on as anthropologists is that the people in their own cultures believe that these objects have mana, and it appears from observation that there is some sort of effect. We might call it a placebo effect in the West because we don't believe in any of it, but for them, it appears to be a real thing. Like that, based on their faith, maybe their faith is producing the effect? Yeah. Versus the object actually having power itself? That's right. That's the way a Westerner, yeah, somebody who's you know, among the educated, the, the literati, um, that is how they would typically describe all of that. Okay. And so it's their way of kind of dumbing it down. And I mean, that you would never, ever hear them say it this way. But, but it, in so many words, where they're going to is, we don't agree that this is what it is claimed to be. We think these people are uh, less educated than we are. I'm putting this in quotes, but the listeners can't see me doing this with my fingers. <laughs> But these people are benighted fools with a Stone Age mentality, and that's why they believe that things like this can have power of this sort. It's primitive. Right, they're primitive. But, but we, in the University of Chicago, at Harvard, at Yale, at you know, UCLA or Berkeley or wherever, we, of course, know that there is no such thing at all. So we're simply describing the behavior and the observed activity rather than passing judgment on whether it is truly so or not. And if you ask us, well, we would say there's actually no power here, but there is the placebo effect. The mere belief that there is power in it is enough to give it some sort of power. And so it becomes an auto-suggesting, self-hypnotic kind of effect. That's the way an academic would commonly describe what we're seeing. And for our listeners, you're saying... I don't believe that. Not how you I believe it. it's real power. There's power coming out of the rock. Right. And there's a lot of reasons why I would say that, but I'll just say, you know, experience teaches you that, that maybe these people living in quote-unquote primitive lands are not as stupid as we might suppose they are. There might be a reason they believe that. They might actually have a good reason for <laughs> believing that. Yeah. Okay. 
And by the way, that mentality is the same one that says, well, you know, when it says Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, I mean, we know dead people don't come back to life. This is just myth and superstition that developed around the, the, the name of Jesus and the, the Jesus legend or the Jesus myth. Um, and in the earliest centuries of the church, they you know, accreted that into the writings of scripture. And once it was crystallized, it became a, a thing. But, but you know, modern science has taught us that Jesus never actually raised Lazarus from the dead because dead people don't come back to life. It's, it's exactly that same mentality. And we can call it the scientific worldview or uh, the rationalist Western worldview, but it's a worldview issue. So if you don't believe that there is such a thing as spiritual power, then you automatically discount any such claims, no matter who they come from. Mm. And, and this is part of the problem we have with the demythologizing of scripture that's going on in seminaries and universities and similar institutions. All right, well, back with this woman in Iraq. So, <clears throat> so no, I've seen that, that there are times when objects do appear to have something going on with them and it's uh, it is more than just somebody's belief which is vacuous when this woman said she could feel power coming from it do you have those same sensations do you pick stuff up like that do you sometimes think, do you feel like there are people who are more sensitive to that stuff than others yeah and do you feel like you're one of the sensitive people or less sensitive to that kind of stuff probably on the scale i'm not as sensitive as some do you feel like do you wish you were do you think that make make your line of work more, you'd be able to engage with it easier? Do you think it's easier that you're not that way? Do you have thoughts on that? Um, it's a hard question to answer because one of the things that a lot of people like about the way I minister is I can teach in a very thinking and rational way. I can explain things. Mm -hmm. And typically people who are feelers, as they are known, they'll just say, well, I can't really explain it. You know, I just sort of feel it. And, <laughs> just know there's something there and they, they you know they can seem we do not sound like that I'm just <laughs> <laughs> but they seem very deep and like they've got uh, you know, they're in touch with something but they often can't fully explain it well yeah so if i were to have more of that in my world than i do and i have some might it be that my analytical and critical thinking abilities would come down mm. i'd like to think no but if it meant giving up that ability to think and to articulate and to, I mean, I used to be a corporate executive, so I'm used to giving you know presentations in boardrooms and explaining numbers, and I mean that's very very you know left brain thinking, very analytical, and I think some of what people like about what I do is that I tend to be pretty analytical in yeah, the way I describe. Super things. helpful for sure. Yeah, you guys. Last night when he was delivering people, it ran. Someone's hunched over, sobbing, coughing. Something's happening to them that we don't understand. And he's yeah. like, in the middle of like yelling at this demon to get out of them, he'll stop and just calmly explain to us why he's doing what he's doing, what's happening to their body, how he interprets it. Like he's just walking us through how he's perceiving the whole thing. And I'm like, what am I witnessing right now? This, <laughs> is, this is remarkable. Anyway, so yeah, I get it. Like, yeah. That makes sense. So I wouldn't want to give up the critical and analytical abilities of my mind in favor of being more of a feeler. But if I could up the feeling side without losing the other side, I would definitely take that. Yeah. Okay, got it. Okay, so she's feeling power from this rock and you're trying to help her understand that this crossing. is not okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, I mean, you, you got it out of a new age bookshop. I mean, what are you thinking? So anyway, again, she starts to get kind of narky and I said, well, <laughs> you know, what, what is it 
that happens? Well, when I, when I pick it up, I can feel energy flowing into my hand. And I'm like, yeah, okay. Now, see, I don't have an issue with that. I, 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 I have that worldview. I understand that that's a thing. I don't, I don't view it as just, oh, this is just your foolish perception mm. and the placebo effect. So, you know, we kind of go around and around, and she sort of finally huffs and says, okay, I'll get rid of that too. But when I, I said, let's take it outside right now and put it in the trash can. So she gets up, does it, comes back in. Begrudgingly? Oh, yeah. Okay. I mean, I think she figured, you know, if this fails, I can go dig it out of the trash can and put it back <laughs> on my shelf and tell this American guy to go flick off, right? So... Anyway, she comes back in, and now that she's done this, and by the way, I, I do want to pause here before I even finish the story. I would ordinarily tell someone, you need to break this. Get a, get a hammer and shatter it. It's not enough just to put it in a trash can. So all you listeners out there, I just told you. Why would you have them break it? Because that's part of how you break the power of the object. It's breaking the object itself. It's ordinarily to break it or burn it. You know, when, when the Lord... Yeah, they always burn the books or the objects or the clothing or why? Burn their idols with, with fire. Yeah, what you are doing is you are making them so they are no longer a receptacle that can hold or receive mana. By changing the, the matter, like the structure of the molecules of the object, it's I don't not think, that, I, right? I don't think it has to do yeah, with molecules. I think it has to do with a lot of times these objects have a particular shape or form and... If you understand how these things work, I've, I've been around it enough and I've read enough about it. I mean, I'm not an expert and I'm certainly not into witchcraft or anything like that. But people who traffic in these things, they do understand that the power is integrally bound to the shape or the, or the, the, the nature of the object. So, so if the, the nature or shape of the object is compromised, then the power as well. That is, is part of how you destroy its power. Okay. That's exactly it. So I've gotten in trouble in certain circles for teaching that matter holds memory, that objects or spaces could actually carry residual spiritual influence. Would you care to speak to that? Uh, well, they do. <laughs> so. Well, what if someone's like, listen, that's not biblical. We see like the anointing resting on stuff, but we don't see anywhere in scripture that demonic power is attached to objects or physical matter. Like we don't have a biblical precedence for that. Well, the thing is, the enemy will mimic anything that God does. And if you ever get around pagan sites or temples or anything like that, you will pretty quickly realize that there may not be an example of it specifically in Scripture, although I will, I will come back to that in a moment, because I think there are a couple of examples. Um, but when you have that kind of uh, environment, it... You, you can sense it if you are attuned to it. Yeah, not, not everybody is. But what if, yeah, what if the person who's of the belief that this isn't a thing right. has no proclivity or sensitivity to that stuff? How could you explain to them without, yeah. you know? So one of the ways that I first became attuned to this was I went to Hawaii years ago with my wife on our honeymoon. And uh, we were hiking uh, up in the you know, hills above the ocean. And we were on the island of Molokai, which almost no one goes to, but there's a, there's a particular valley that is very pretty, and a lot of people like to go up there. There's a waterfall up at the head of the valley. And so we come hiking up the trail, and as we kind of hit the crest of the trail, right there at the top, there's a circle of rocks with, with leaves laid out quite obviously all around it. And this in Hawaiian is called a heiau. 
H-E, I think it's I-A-U, the way you spell it, I believe. Anyway, it's called a heiau. Well, a heiau in American English is a high place. And typically what they do is they sacrifice to the spirits on a heiau. And it's not human sacrifice. It's, it's fruits and, you know, things like that. But I, I, we came right over the top. And, I mean, it was like, you know that scene in uh, the, the one Star Wars movie where there's Darth Maul and there's that wall of power? And who is it? It's uh, Qui-Gon Jinn Qui no, and Obi-Wan yeah. against Darth Maul. Yeah. But no one can get through that thing. It was like that. It was like, and I just hit it. You physically ran into an invisible force? Yeah, and I could feel it. And I was like, whoa. And, and, and you could tell it was not, it was evil. You could, could you just pass through it if you wanted to? I don't think so. You think it physically would have? I think it was like, it was a guardian spirit is what I believe. Okay. It was, that was protecting that hail. Okay. Now I know some people, maybe I'm going to get all the people that we are angry with you. We just lost everybody right now. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Anyway, um, I've seen crazier stuff than that. But anyway, this was, a, this was kind of in the early days when I was first, you know, learning about it experientially as opposed to out of a book. <clears throat> and so I was like, whoa, what is that? Whoa. And so it's not like I wanted to cross into the Heiau, which, by the way, I would not recommend people do because I always tell people stay out of temples, stay out of shrines, stay out of high places, stay out of worship sites. Because typically there is power that's been somehow invoked. And the, the, the parallel to it is when we, see, when we look at the Bible, we read about them consecrating a site like the temple. Mm. And suddenly the presence of God fills the temple mm. or the tabernacle mm. before the temple. Well, what is that? Well, that's invoking a spirit. In this case, God's spirit. And it's okay, it's legit, because it's God. But the dark side understands this as well, and so they will invoke a spirit on a worship site. And oftentimes, if people cross into that site, the guardian of the site will afflict them, or assail them, or assault them. Now, this is more an animist worldview than... Uh, than the Western scientific worldview. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, did the writers of scripture have that sort of animist, more primitive worldview, or did they have a Western scientific worldview? And the answer is, they didn't have a scientific worldview because that hadn't even been invented yet. So how did they understand their universe? How did they understand these things? And the answer is, they understood them the way I'm just describing them. So anyway, um, you know, I, I kind of ran into this thing, and I, I'm, I'm trying, like, pushing against it. Now, the trail ran to the side, so as I'm kind of moving down the trail, it's almost like I'm checking to you see. You keep pushing against it. Yeah, and it, it was like a what, perimeter setup. What did setup. it feel like? Like a wall? Was it cold? Was it, like, electric? It felt just a little bit soft and squishy. So it's like you could lean into it a bit, but then it became firm, and you couldn't go any further. Was there a temperature to it? It was about the same temperature as the ambient air. Okay. And did it hurt? No, it didn't hurt. But as I as I as I was, you know, encountering this and looking at it, I mean, I understood some things about spiritual gifts, but gifts grow with using too, and so like authority. I don't. They were like yeah. authority. Right. Got it. And this is going to sound really weird. I'm sorry to you listeners out there. I'm not trying to sound weird, and I am really authentically a Christian who believes in the <laughs> Trinity and the deity of Jesus. Uh, but 
it was, it was, as I'm looking at it, the air is of course clear like you and I are seeing each other right now. But it was almost like I could see lines like this that were sort of moving. Like a heat wave? Yeah, like a heat wave. Okay. Coming up off the ground from, from the perimeter of rocks and sort of ascending up until they dissipated you know, far higher than I would be able to jump. And I realized there's, there's like an energy field here or something. And it was at that point that I realized, I don't know if I want to get tangled up in this. I'm on vacation with my <laughs> wife. And so I just, I literally said, I'm not here to start anything. I just want to move on. Who are you talking to when you say that? Whatever was there, whoever that was. You're talking to was. whatever spirit or presence yeah. was, okay. And so I just kind of continued down the trail and we left the hay out behind and went on up the trail and went to the waterfall, went swimming. And on our way back down, I'm coming down the trail and I'm thinking, that was weird. I couldn't possibly be right. So we get back to that same place as the trail empties down. And this hay owl, by the way, was roughly the size of this living room. Okay. So, you know, if you were inside the circle, you would have, been, you know, you could put a number of people in there for your ceremony. By the way, on that same point, if you talk to native Hawaiians who are not Christianized and who are trying to revert to the old religions and gods, and this is a huge nativist thing that is going on in Hawaii right now. There's a almost wholesale repudiation of Christianity among mm. the Hawaiians who were Christianized by missionaries 150 years ago, plus or minus. Mm. Um, if you talk with them, they're trying to bring back the old gods and the old ways and all that. So if you talk to these Hawaiians that are in that mind space, they will tell you that the reason they do the hula is they're summoning the spirits. This is a dance designed to summon the spirits. Well, this, is, this isn't sort of like, this is identical to what you know, people who live in quote-unquote deepest, darkest Africa will tell you they do when they do some of their rituals in deepest, darkest Africa. Hmm. Now, I want to, because we live in the times we live in, I am not hereby making uh, aspersions against people with either brown or black skin. Because you know where else you run into this exact identical phenomenon? Scandinavia, where white people live. And I don't care if they're Swedish or Finnish or Icelandic, you'll run into the same identical phenomenon. So this also occurs in white-skinned lands where they're now reverting to their old Nordic gods and so forth. Hmm. And, and so they have a pretty well-developed conception of what all this is. <clears throat> so anyway, we're coming down the trail, we get back to this heyow, and I'm like, I just want to see if this is really a thing. So as we go by, you know, the rocks, I just try putting my hands. Now, you know, think of the, that no one can see this, but this is the edge of your futon. Mm. So let's say this is that line of rocks with the, the leaves laid down. On yeah. it. What's that? I was saying it's the Ottoman he's referencing. Oh, the <laughs> There's Ottoman. not a futon in my living All right. room. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. No, that's great. Go ahead. But anyway, as we go by, I'm, I'm thinking, okay, I'm just going to put my hands over the line. Where you couldn't before. Yeah, essentially, I want to try right? this out and see okay. if I was making it up, Yeah, right? That's what I'm really doing. I'm yeah. doing an experiment. And so, you know, as I do it here in your living room, I can easily put my hands over this line right this here. This threshold. Yeah, threshold. No one can see it, of course, on the right. recording, but <clears throat> those who are sitting here can see it. So as we go by, I try to put my hands and I go, <laughs> oh, and it was still there. You, it, it was dramatic because you pushed hard? Yeah, well, I mean, okay. if I'd gone slower, I probably would have just, like okay, I said, it yeah. was a little bit soft but firm, and then you can't go any further. But I just decided to try and put my hands through, and it would be like if you tried to do that to your wall. 
How's that going to go? Yeah, it doesn't. Boom! You just hit it. And I was like, wow. My wife looked at me. She goes, well, that's crazy. What is that? Did she do it too? No, no she wasn't. She didn't want to touch it? I mean, she was just watching it. So I can't imagine witnesses. being there and not doing it too. <laughs> I'm upset. Well, you know, anybody who's listening to this, well, I don't know anybody, but a lot of your listeners are coming out of a Bethel environment. And what does Bethel teach? The spirit realm is as real as the physical realm. It just isn't always visible. It's the only difference. And being spiritual, it may not always be tangible. But, but there case. are times <laughs> when it is. Okay. And so in this case, it was. And so that was my first sort of ex encounter with that kind of stuff. I didn't really have a big framework for it. I was you know, kind of processing it as I went. But I, I just tell that story to highlight this idea that, that there is this kind of reality. All right, so let's go back to your original question, which is that things have power. What biblical precedent do we have that the demonic could attach to objects or, or places like we see? The well, I, I would submit to you that when uh, Paul has his revival in Ephesus, um, if you if you read that passage carefully in Ephesians 19, I mean, I could pull it up on my phone if you want to, but it says in Ephesians 19, those who were now believers began to bring their scrolls and they burned them in the public square and they counted up the value and it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Okay, so the first thing we need to stipulate to is that these are actually Christians. Because it says, those who were now believers. These are not non-believers. These are believers. And again, if you have a worldview that doesn't go here, it's time to change your worldview to conform to Scripture, not change, your, change the Scripture or ignore it or suppress it or whatever to conform to a presupposition. So those who are now believers came and they burned their scrolls. And it appears that they're having a deliverance revival and, and I sometimes call it a level two revival because first they'd gotten saved under Paul's ministry. But now those who were believers, and, and right after that, by the way, we have the failed uh, exorcism, not deliverance, that occurs with the seven sons of Sceva and this demonized man. And that demonized man ends up beating and wounding the seven sons of Sceva and they flee. And the word becomes known all through the city of Ephesus because of this thing. And they, well, how did that happen? Well, they invoked the name of Jesus, but they actually had no right to be using the name of Jesus because they weren't believers. They were Jews. Mm -hmm. And although the Jews were and are the people of God, the fact that you're part of the people of God doesn't make you automatically a believer. Mm -hmm. Belief comes through belief. It's kind of axiomatic, but I'm just trying to make it simple and clear. So they, they watch what Paul's doing with all of his deliverance. Because remember, the handkerchiefs and the aprons are being taken away. And they're obviously infused with some kind of spiritual power. So they say, well, we'll invoke the name of Jesus over this demonized man, and that'll be enough to get this guy free. And it actually backfires, and the, the demonized man jumps on them and beats them, and they run out of the house bleeding, and the whole city knows about it. And based on that, those who are now believers have an aha moment. And they're like, you know, we probably need to go a little deeper. It wasn't enough merely to get born again. We need to get rid of our amulets and our charms and our little shrine figures of Artemis living right here in Ephesus, whose patron saint or 
whose guardian spirit, whose ruling spirit is the deity Artemis. Uh, the scripture says all the gods of the nations are demons, Psalm 106, 36, and 37. So we might have a problem here. And so they come bringing all their scrolls and they burn them. And based on that, there's a huge epic breakout and it says based on that, the word of God prevailed mightily. Well, that language really means nothing could withstand it. And so now the revival goes to a new level and it's like a flash fire. Now, you know, here we are in California. We've just been having big brush fires. We know what flash fires are. It's like a whole line of trees just explodes in flames all at once. And it's, there is something that gets released in that kind of a, a breakthrough time. And it appears that the catalytic event, it doesn't actually say it, so those who want to push back, you can go ahead and push back. I'll be the first one to say it. It doesn't explicitly say it, but it appears just reading it through linearly, it appears that the catalytic event that releases that kind of anointing is none other than the burning of the scrolls. Hmm. So query, what was it that was in the scrolls? It wasn't just words on a page. It was the power, it was the spells, it was the spirits that are bound to all of those writings. And maybe the amulets and the charms. Now with your analytical mind, how would you explain to our Western listeners how written text could somehow bind a spirit to a like parchment? How does that work? Do you have any explanation for that? Well, in many cases, if you talk to people who are into the occult or other religions, you know, when they, when they write their sacred texts, when they scribe things, they will frequently pray beforehand. I mean, we, we use the word pray. They may not use that exact term, but it's, it's an engagement with the spirit world, asking them to give them the power to, to bind to the very texts themselves so they have living power in them. Mm. And it is spirits that give that power to those, those, those letters and words. Mm. I mean, this is really the concept behind the idea of plenary verbal inspiration of Scripture, or when we see it in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is theopneustos, breathed out by God. God <sighs> breathes on the words, and this is why Jesus says every single dot, every single jot and tittle, every dot of the I, every crossing of the T, that is inspired itself. Why? Because it's breathed out by God. The breath of the living God is on the, on the Holy Scriptures, the ones that we call the Bible. Well, there's a comparable idea, although it's not breathed out by our God, in many of these texts and things. Mm -hmm. And if you've ever, uh, not that I recommend doing this experiment, I want to be really clear, but you know, I've been around a lot. If you ever start reading texts that come out of some of these traditions, you will feel something come over you. Totally. I remember when I was in college and I was studying Buddhism as part of my curriculum. We had to read something called the Tibetan Book of the Dead. I'll say it again. I do not recommend that you do this. But I remember picking up the book and I could feel something in the book. Even then, I didn't have language for it. I'm like, hmm, weird. Started to read it and it was like something came over me. My, it came over my eyes. They, they, my vision wasn't as clear. I felt sort of... Like dizzy? Yeah, dizzy. <laughs> and, and you know what was funny was I was a really on fire, vibrant Christian. And I could literally, by the minute as I read further and further into the Tibetan Book of the Dead, I could feel my level of ardor, my level of passion for Jesus declining. 
I had a similar experience when I read um, the writings of Nietzsche, Friedrich Nietzsche, and particularly when I was reading uh, his writings about the Superman, the Übermensch in German. And you know Nietzsche's writings and that thinking became the core of Nazism. And and there's a power in those writings. And I remember, like it got, I had to read these. They were my textbooks, right? So I, I'm forcing myself to read through them, and and I'm I'm feeling my faith ebbing away. Even though I'm reading the Bible and going to you know youth group or whatever college age group and worshiping the Lord, I could still feel something is wrong. I'm, mm. I'm, I'm declining here. I'm losing altitude. What does it feel like to feel like your faith is going away? You're going spiritually dead. You're no longer excited about Jesus. You're mm. questioning, are these things that are in the Bible true? Why did I mm. believe that? Mm. You're starting to have all these doubts about mm. things. That's what's going on. Wow. And so I'm feeling all this happen. So I go and talk to my campus pastor who's running our you know, college ministry. And I said, you know, I don't know what's wrong with me. I just don't feel right. I mean, I, I believe I prayed the prayer. I believe in Jesus, but I was like, I can feel my faith slipping away from me. And you know, he tried to talk to me a bit, and he didn't know what was going on. And by the way, in these days, back then, is you know, 150 years ago, <laughs> I didn't. We didn't know anything about the demonic. We didn't know anything about spiritual power. We had no language. We had no training. We had nothing. But he sits me down in a chair and he goes, "This is demonic. I don't know what this is, but this has to stop." And I, it was the craziest thing, Mike. The craziest thing. So he sits me down in this chair and he puts his hand on my shoulder and he says, Father, in the name of Jesus, I don't know what this is, but I just take authority over it and I rebuke it in the name of Jesus and I command it to go. And nothing seemed to happen. It was very undramatic, non-responsive. He finished his praying. He probably prayed five minutes and then he was done and he takes his hand off of me and literally nothing had changed. I was like, well, that was, you know, that's about what I think. It's a it's all hogwash. It's all hokum. I, you know, I, bu I bought a bill of goods. You see? There, that proves it. And I get up and I leave the building. And as I'm leaving the building, I feel life returning to me. I'm starting to feel light. Hmm. All that deadness, all that heaviness, all that skepticism, all that depression, it's, it's lifting off of me as I'm walking away from him. I would call this a delayed response to the <laughs> prayer that he'd prayed. But and literally within the hour, I was back in black. Well, not black. I was black and white, right? <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm feeling the life of God in me again. My faith has returned to me. I'm feeling vibrant. And what I realized out of that was, man, there is power in these books. Mm. Because they are propagating something that Paul calls doctrines of demons. 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. In latter times, some will give heed. They will pay attention to seducing spirits, evil spirits that draw you away and seduce you, and they will pay attention to things that are taught by demons. It's right there in Scripture. Paul, the apostle of grace, is talking about demonic power that comes through teachings, certain teachings, not all teachings, but some. Mm. And I had a direct encounter with it. I didn't have a lot of language for it. I understood later what had occurred, but this happened to me. And what I realize now is, you remember the scene in The Lord of the Rings where Theoden, you know, he's all shriveled up and he's grayed up and he's got this guy Grima Wormtongue. Well, Grima was casting spells that had that sort of a power and they had taken Theoden down that path and then Gandalf comes in and effectively ministers deliverance. To, to I mean, it doesn't use that language. It's descriptive that I'm doing now. He but delivers Theoden. He delivers yeah. Theoden. And now Theoden can come back and he can get on his horse and he can go into battle against Mordor. 
This is what the enemy seeks to do in paralyzing people, and he will use anything he can. For some people, it's a quote-unquote religious text. For some people, it's more of a philosophical text. Mm -hmm. So the religious text for me was the Tibetan Book of the Dead. The philosophical text was the writings of Friedrich Nietzsche. Mm -hmm. And in the case of my woman in Sydney, it was her rock. So now we take on this thing with all of her food allergies and cramping and IBS, whatever she had, I don't remember. And I command these spirits to come out. And now, instead of it, remember I said we'd bogged down. It was like wading through mashed potatoes, yeah. not really working. Yeah. Now it was like it was like an Exocet missile. <laughs> Direct hit midships. And, you know, it's like we broke the hull of the ship. Mm. And now the ship is going to sink. Well, that's what you want. You want a direct hit with the power of God. And I'm telling you what, this woman got delivered. She starts vomiting on the video link. Her mom grabs the trash can. All these spirits are coming out of her. She was healed that moment. Never had another problem with her digestion. Wow. When they're vomiting, have you seen a bunch of people vomit during deliverance? Yeah. Is it, does the vomit look the same every time? No. Does the vomit look like what they ate earlier, or is it something else? It can vary. I've seen vomit that's jet black. I've seen vomit that's blood red. I've seen vomit that looks like conventional vomit. The blood red, was it blood? I don't know. It was blood red. That's why I said it the way I said it. <laughs> I've so seen all kinds of stuff. One time I saw somebody literally spew, and it was green. I don't know what that was. It wasn't good, I can tell you that. <laughs> okay, so she got rid of the rock... And then when you say, when you do that crazy sound effect you just did and you hit the hull of the ship and whatever, yeah. what did that look like in the moment? How did you know that happened? Oh, well, she's on the video link with me and I can see her. And I said, now in the name of Jesus, I just command the spirits that were tied to that rock to release your hold on her and come out. And she, now no one can see me doing this, of course. Unfortunately. But, but you know, her face sort of contorted and her head goes back like this and her eyes rolled back. And she goes, like that. Oh my God. And it was on. She's vomiting. She's okay. vomiting. And her mom, her mom was cued in. She grabs the trash can so that the vomit didn't land on the computer keyboard and short the key computer <laughs> out. That would have been the end of that deliverance session and wow. the computer. And so all the vomit goes into the trash can. But now she takes it and she's kind of leaned over and I can only see the top of her head and her shoulders. And she's like, Bleh! she's getting delivered well I mean this is what it is so not all deliverances are that dramatic but that is not rare when deliverance is going on hmm. so you know with that you can understand that there are there are powers in the universe that are that are more than what our Western rational scientific minds can, can process. So, you know, Paul actually speaks of this in 1 Corinthians 10 when he talks about food sacrifice to idols. And he says, the power behind the idol is a demon. Well, there is your theological justification for the idea that an object might have what a sociologist or an anthropologist would term mana. mana. It's actually a demonic power that is somehow bonded to or fused to the, you know, the object in question. 
if it's an idol, then it, th that will be the demonic power behind the idol. Uh, it could be a heiau. It could be a temple. It could be what they call a wat. Think of Angkor Wat in Thailand. So all of those stupas and temples, they call them wats, W-A-T-S. Don't think of any English word. That's just what they call it, so I'm calling it what they call it. But there's often something there. And I, I've lost count of the number of people that I've prayed for who have gone on vacation and they thought it would be really cool to go see the, the mosque or the shrine or the wat or the high place or the whatever. They were in India or Bangladesh or Pakistan or Saudi Arabia. I mean, it just depends where they went. But they crossed a line into what is, in every sense of the word, consecrated ground, except in this case, don't think of consecrated as holy unto the Lord. It's holy unto that other God, that other demon. And they come home and they are afflicted with this, that, and the next that they picked up in those places. And then we drive those spirits out and now they are able to function again. If they, if they were sickly, they're no longer sickly. If they are having digestive problems, they're no longer having digestive problems. If they are subject to narcolepsy, they no longer seem to be just falling asleep at the drop of a hat. And it's because the evil spirits that were those guardians are, they're driven off. And now this person is free of the problem that they had. I'll, I'll give you a really ex dramatic example of this one. This happened in Central America. I went to this church in the southern end of, um, of El Salvador and there's a bay down there and I can't remember the name of the bay, but anyone with a map could look it up. And it's the place where Nicaragua and Honduras and El Salvador all come together. They converge and there's a bay that opens onto the Pacific Ocean. And the town in El Salvador is called Reunion, or we would say in English, Reunion. But the right way to say it in Spanish is Reunion. So we go to Reunion and I walk into the church. I have my message ready for the night and the worship's going on and the Lord speaks to me and he says, I don't want you to do that message. And I'm like, oh, thanks for that. What am I supposed to do here? love it when that happens. Yeah. <laughs> but I know the voice of the Lord, and I'm like, well, so what do you want me to teach on? He goes, I want you to teach out of uh, the story in Mark 1 where the leper uh, comes and he gets healed. And he, and he gives me talking points. So I, I literally pull out a piece of paper and a pen, and I'm just jotting down the key points. And this is not a good Bible teaching outline. It's just, this is my, okay, Lord, this is what we're talking about tonight. You and me, Jesus, here we go. So I get up, and I teach on the healing of the leper. And I'm thinking, what are we going to do with this anyway? So we get to the end. The Lord says, now there's a bunch of people here and they all have skin conditions. I want you to pray for them. Call them up, no matter what their skin condition is. And so I, you know, I give the altar call. And I speak some Spanish, but I don't speak it well enough to preach. So my translator you know, gives it. And about 100 people come forward. And I'm like, well, there were a lot of people here with skin conditions. Now, a skeptic's going to say, well, you know, you're in a third world country. And you know, of course, there's a lot of people with skin conditions. Well, okay, maybe so, but either way, so we start praying, and I have a small team with me, and so we kind of divvy up, and we start, and people are getting healed. And we had some really dramatic healings of people who appeared to have eczema or whatever, and, and that literally as we would pray, it would, you could watch it just dissipate, and all the scaling or redness would just vanish. In front of you? Yeah, right in front of our eyes. Why would that seem exceptional to you? You see how infected with skepticism you are? You live in the West. Yeah. This is the way it ought to be. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I've just never seen that before. So we're watching all this happen. So anyway, uh, this guy comes up to me, 
and he has some sort of something going on, and he's, his, his body is, it's a cross between itching and burning. And it, it, he, he is incredibly uncomfortable. And of course, he's gone to the doctor immediately, and a Westerner is going to say, well, of course, it's a banana republic. What do they know about real medicine? <laughs> I mean, I recognize that's a racist comment, but that is the mindset of the West. You know, we live in America. We have real medicine. They're in Central America. They're going to get the third-class medicine. And the same in Africa and India and all this. That's why we can't trust any of these reports that come out of countries like this. I mean, honestly, if, if they're honest and they unpack it, that's where their mind is. You're nodding vigorously. You know what I'm talking about. So anyway, he has this itching, burning thing. And so um, my translator that travels with me, he is from El Salvador, but he's fluent in English because he came to the U.S. years ago. And he speaks exceptional English. He's theologically trained, and he obviously is fluent in Spanish. So we start interviewing this guy, and I said, so when did all this start? Well, it started about a few months ago, and he tells me. I said, what happened then? He goes, well, you know, I went to Costa Rica as a missionary. Well, I'd come to El Salvador from Costa Rica. It's funny how the Lord preps you for these things. And so we... I said, you came here from El Salvador. Or you, went the, you went to Costa Rica from El Salvador. He said, you went out from this church? Yeah, they sent you? Yeah, okay. What happened there? Well, you know, I went, to, I went to Costa Rica. I said, where in Costa Rica did you go? And he goes, well, I went to this area up here in kind of the northeast part of it. I said, did you cross such and such a bridge as you were, you know, transiting? He said, yeah, I did. I said, I know what your problem is. And I'd, I'd learned this on my recent journey in Costa Rica. I didn't know about this until I'd landed in Costa Rica and bumped into the guardian spirit of that sector. Now, people talk about principalities and powers. It's real. And that sector of Costa Rica, is, its guardian spirit is something called La Negrita. And if you understand Spanish, it means the little black one or brown one. They're, they're actually... Black is negro, so it really means the black one, but sometimes people downgrade it and say the little brown one. Who is the little brown one? It is, have you ever heard of the Black Madonna in Poland? No. Well, the Black Madonna in Poland is a black statue of the Virgin Mary. And Costa Rica has its own version of that. La Negrita means the little black Virgin Mary. That's what it means in Costa Rica. And she is the guardian spirit of that sector of the country. I said, when you cross that bridge that I just asked you about, and I had seen the bridge as we were talking to him, so it was a you know, flash vision. Sorry, yeah. You saw it in your mind. It was a okay. flash vision. That's yeah. what made me ask him. I said, you crossed into her sector. I said, did you realize you were stepping into a battle zone? He goes, well, no. Everybody told me that I'm the righteousness of Christ and nothing can touch me. I said, how'd that work for you? He goes, well, I've been itching and burning ever since. It's like I, I, can't, like I can't function at all. So I said, right. So here's what I want you to do. I take, take my hands, so took his hand. And I said, I want you to confess the sin of presumption that you thought you could cross into a zone without, without proper protection. You just sort of sauntered in and thought you were going to take everything on. He goes, well, I only went to build orphanages and houses. I said, I get it, but but you came under the domain of that thing. So pray with me. So he confessed the sin of presumption. I said, now, in the name of Jesus, I command the spirit of La Negrita, release your hold on him, and come out. 
remember this is all in the back end of a teaching about healing of skin conditions that starts with leprosy because that's what Jesus healed. And this guy kind of arcs back like this and he goes <coughs> and he, he's almost bent over like the St. Louis arch bending backward. Then he goes and you can hear this thing leave and then he, he stands back up and he goes, what was that? And I said, that was La Negrita, and you're being delivered of that spirit. And he goes, it feels like someone has just dumped ice water over my whole body. All the itching and burning is gone. I said, yeah, that's the Lord healing you right now. I said, be healed in Jesus' name. So he, he's, he starts crying, because he's been in agony for weeks from this thing. And now he feels like someone's pouring ice water over him and all that itchy, burny, fiery, whatever that was, his whole body is losing that sensation. And all of the redness in his skin is just fading away. And after about probably three or four minutes, I don't know, I wasn't you know, on the clock watching him, but it was in that range. He kind of goes, okay, the coolness is lifting. I said, how do you feel? He goes, I don't, I don't itch at all. And I said, okay, so the Lord took care of it. Well, my translator knew the pastor of that church, and so I said to my translator, let's follow this up in two weeks. I want to know about this guy. Mm. I want to make sure this sticks. I want to make sure it's legit. And it did. It was, and he's fine today. Wow. So that's an example of the kind of thing that we're talking about. And again, most Westerns, Western believers have zero worldview for this. But this is the world Jesus operated in. This is the world that the apostles operated in. And it's part of what gave them the incredible breakthroughs because people would see this and they would say, there's power in the name of Jesus that is more powerful than all the gods and demons and other stuff that we have going on in our world. And so we're going to go with the more powerful one. There's a man named Ramsey who wrote a book about maybe it was 10 or 12 years ago called Evangelizing Rome. And basically his conclusion in that book is that the reason the apostolic church was so successful in bringing all of Rome to its knees and converting them was because everywhere they went, they were actually having breakthroughs like this. And if you read the writings of the apologists, the church fathers, legitimate leaders of the church, bishops, priests, whoever they were, who were writing in primarily the second and early third centuries, you will see them making statements like this. When we come to town as Christians, we drive out all of the demons and people find freedom from the things that, that trouble them. What do your gods do anyway? That was their apologetic. They're not having a rational argument about, well, you know, it says here, and so Jesus is the Son of God, and you need to believe that, and it's more meaningful than existentialism, or not that that had been invented yet. But, but they have a completely different discourse. It's all about mm. power encounters. Mm. And remember, Paul said, my message and my preaching were not with wise words of human wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, the Spirit, Holy Spirit, and of power, in order that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, meaning our great teaching and clever arguments, but rather in the power of God. And then he goes on and says, 1 Corinthians, so that's 1 Corinthians 2, 4. 1 Corinthians 4.20 says, For the kingdom of God does not consist in words and talk, but in power. And so I learned this years ago from John Wimber that, that power is the name of the game when we're dealing with kingdom of light, kingdom of darkness. And these stories I've just told you are all about power, whether it's mana power or kingdom power. 
But if you understand your authority and you invoke the power of the kingdom, it, it will give you breakthrough power. But this is not just words spoken in the air. It's not just the word that I use is noetic. It's not just a belief in something or that because I recited all the right words or chanted the right things or decreed and proclaimed. It's not that. It's because the power of the kingdom is released and it has an invasive effect that will break the enemy's lines and shatter the power of demons, of mana. It will, it will eliminate that and with it people get freed from things that have bound them that they can't get free of simply by claiming or proclaiming or whatever, reclaiming. You need power on power. You literally need breakthrough power where the heavens open and that comes down. And I can show you over and over and over in Scripture where that sort of thing is on exhibit. Mm. Jesus returned from the wilderness temptings in the power of the Spirit, Luke 4.14. And word about him went out everywhere because people were seeing, man, when this guy comes, it's like a line of tanks running into the fortifications of a bunch of infantry and they just <laughs> right through. The kingdom is advancing. The kingdom of God is at hand. So that's, that's Luke 4.14. Then Luke 5.17, Jesus is preaching in a house in his own newly adopted hometown of Capernaum. He'd left Nazareth, and he's now living by the Sea of Galilee in Capernaum. And it says, And a crowd gathered so that no one could get in the door, and four men came bringing a paralytic. And so they go up on the roof, they chop a hole in the roof, they lower the man apparently on ropes or something. He comes down, he's hanging in front of Jesus as Jesus is trying to preach. And Jesus looks at him, he says, and it says, The power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. Critical phrase. Every word of Scripture is inspired. That doesn't happen to be there. It's not just a random thing. God's trying to tell us something through the pen of Luke. The power of the Lord is present for him to heal the sick. Jesus looks at him and he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. And all the Pharisees and scribes, they say, Who is this man? What do you think he's saying? Who can forgive sin but God alone? And Jesus says, In order that you would know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin, and, and basically what's going on there is they're saying, well, anyone can say your sins are forgiven, but who really knows? He says, but in order that you would know that the Son of Man really has that power, I'm going to do what you think is hard in order to show you that I can do what is truly hard because no one can actually forgive sin except God. But when I've spoken forgiveness of sin, that actually has happened. I'm going to prove it to you, and here's how I'm going to do it. Rise and walk! And boom, the man gets up off his bed. Why? Because the power of the Lord was present. All right, roll it forward. I can't remember where it is in Luke 6, but it's somewhere in the 6th chapter of Luke. I just don't remember the verse address. I'm going from memory. I don't have my Bible open. <laughs> but it says that, that Jesus is you know, doing his thing, and it says all the crowds around him sought to touch him because power was coming out of him, and all who touched him were healed. So you know whether they get their hand on his shoulder or his head or whatever, Everyone who's touching Jesus, they're trying to lay hands on him, and <laughs> power is flowing out of him. Now, I don't know if that's a one-time thing in his ministry or a many-time thing in his ministry. I tend to think it's a many-time thing, and here's why. Go forward two more chapters, and now we're in the eighth chapter of Luke, and I believe the address on this one is 842. We have a woman with an issue of blood. For 12 years, she can't be healed. She apparently missed the meeting in Luke 6, but she goes, if I can just touch him, I'll be healed. 
She apparently, it seems, again, doesn't explicitly say this, but she'd heard something about the Luke 6 meeting. And we're two chapters on. She's like, dang it, I missed that meeting, but I'll bet if I touch him, I can get healed. And so she makes her way up to Jesus, even though she shouldn't, because she's unclean. She said, if I can just touch the fringe of his garment, it'll be enough. And so somehow she manages to touch him. We don't know exactly what it on his foot, his leg. Did she reach over the crowd, touch his shoulder, grab his hair? I don't know, but whatever. She touches him, and immediately she's healed. Why? Because power flowed out of him. Mana, if you're an anthropologist or a sociologist. Jesus turns around and goes, who touched me? And Peter, what does Peter do? Peter says, well, Master, everyone's touching you. I mean, what are you talking about? They're all crushing in on you. He goes, no, no, no. This was a different kind of touch. And so the woman realizes she's been found out. She, she admits it. Jesus says, go your way. Your faith has healed you. Well, it wasn't, this is not meant to be a, you know, claim it and stand on your faith, sister. That's not it at all. The issue is the power. You had confidence that if you touched me, you would encounter power and power would flow into your body, and it did. And so you acted because you had a confidence. Faith is a good synonym for confidence. And in that, the circuit closed and you got healed. And so there it is again. So I've just walked you through several scriptures where this is, except I can't remember the exact address in Luke 6, but someone could find it fairly quickly. And so then we get to the near the end of the book of Luke, Luke 24, 49. I know the address on this one. Jesus says to the apostles, I want you to stay in Jerusalem until you have received power. And then you'll be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. And in case they didn't get it, now we roll out of Luke into the book of Acts, which is also written by Luke. And here we are in Acts 1, 4, and 1, 8, and what does he say? You will receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you. It's all about the power. Mm. And one of the big risks that we run in our modern world, and it is a big deal, it is a huge deal, is that we want to take, take Christianity from a power, or I'm going to say numinous, that's the right word anthropologically, N-U-M-I-N-O-U-S, a numinous approach with the dynamic, active, catalytic power of God's Spirit moving. We want to move it out of that into something that is noetic, which is all in the head, the mm -hmm. mind. It's based on sort the of. word nous, which is the Greek word for mind. And suddenly it all becomes cerebral. If I just confess, if I just decree, if I just quote the scripture at God, then that will be enough. No, that's not enough. I mean, sometimes I know people get some breakthrough on it, but more often than not, you find people that are frustrated. And they're like, I claimed my healing 10 years ago. I believe that Jesus died for my healing. And I'm like, well, you don't look healed. Don't say that. You'll break my confession. That's a noetic approach. And it, 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 you know, we, we saw a whole wave of it in the 1970s and 80s with what was at that time called the faith movement. And most of it was originating out of Dallas and Tulsa. We had a whole series of faith teachers. And what did they say? Confession brings possession. Or as some would say, trying to be a little more derogatory, name it and claim it. And so the belief was, <laughs> there's that word, the belief was that if you, if you confessed appropriately, you would get what you confessed. All of that is a noetic approach. When we're dealing with the dynamic, active power of God, and when the cloud is there, when the pillar is there, when that sort of power, and that was what was happening in this living room last night, power was on exhibit. But you know, it took a little while to get it moving. And you know why? 
because nearly everyone in this room had a noetic approach. That's what they've been trained to believe and do. Mm. And so we had to get past the noetic into the realm of the numinous. And once we did that, things started to happen. People started feeling energy. They started feeling heat. The one guy fell on this cushion right here. <laughs> when we drove out the spirit of Jabulon that is behind Freemasonry, you got touched by the Lord, and you felt <laughs> power go through you. By the way, how's your stomach been today? It's good, okay. So we were after food allergies, right? We've we, got have people a, we have an audience here today. <laughs> We've got people with us here. Yeah. <laughs> so this shows you that this is a working paradigm that actually has legitimacy and it's scripturally grounded. I think it's, it's super important that things be scripturally grounded. Mm -hmm. but, but we've got to move off the noetic into the numinous. This is, a, this is one of the most important things that we can come to. So um, you asked me about you know, power, charmed objects, you know, things like that. Yeah. So I showed you where Paul apparently feels the need that if these people are going to get free in Ephesus, who are believers, you say, well, why didn't he just tell them one and done, man? You're born again. You don't need any of that. You don't need any kind of deliverance. What are you, what are you talking about, man? It was all done at the cross. Well, Paul apparently didn't think that. He has a big bonfire. It's not merely that they're turning away. It's that there is power inextricably bound to these things, mm -hmm. these texts, these scrolls. And so they burn it all, and now everyone's really getting free. And that brings a blockbuster breakout. You see, see it right there in Paul's ministry. But again, if you don't have eyes to see, you won't perceive. If you don't have ears to hear, you won't hear. But it, it seems to have been part of Paul's ministry. Shoot, Ken. Okay. Shoot, dog. What time I is it? Oh, it. man, it's, we really went Yeah, we got to right. I told did you I, I could I do this it short. Did I call it <laughs> It's okay, all guys, your fault. I man. know. I'm so sorry. We, we got to wrap this up. So I'm going to land this plane. Ken, thank you so much for sharing. Man, I love that I'm getting to, you know, have a platform for you to get to share this with people who probably would never find this otherwise. Thank you for sharing what you're sharing and doing what you do. Man, this is such a paradigm shift for so many of us because of the world we were raised in and the way that we were taught, including in maybe especially in church. Like this is wild, yeah. right? So thank you so much. I just have such a value and appreciation for who you are, what you carry, what you're doing. For the church, man. This you know, is... I'll just say this is a, kind of a closing thing that'll be very quick. I watched John Wimber battle that word of faith thing. I mean, it wasn't like an opponent, but it was so prevalent because of the faith teaching in the 70s and 80s. Mm. And I watched John with, with this numinous paradigm. I watched him have to come up against it and walk people through it and explain it. And, and as people moved away from it, they would suddenly start coming into healings that they couldn't get, deliverances that weren't happening, all that. Mm. Well... It's almost like that thing has resurfaced in a slightly modified form with a little bit different language. But the concept is very close. Um, this thing of, of the noetic and decreeing and proclaiming, it's very similar. And so, again, we're you know 30 years down the road from that, or 40, and we need to once again reestablish the primacy of the presence and the power. I actually have a series that people might be interested in getting um, you can go to my website, orbisministries.org, and it's called The Kingdom of God in Presence and Power. And I explore some of these themes in that series. You can download it or you can buy CDs or DVDs. Uh, but anyway, you can get it at orbisministries.org. Okay, brilliant. Thank you. Good. Orbisministries.org. That's yeah. O-R-B-I-S, ministries.org. Cool. Ken, thank you so much for being on here again. I'm excited to have you on here again. And again. And again. <laughs> 
you guys thanks for listening remember to like comment subscribe um check out ken's stuff go to orbisministries.org and check out all these things obviously ken is teaching some stuff you're probably not going to hear other places but the man has fruit in his ministry fruit in his life like he's moving in the numinous super helpful all right love you guys we'll see you next time Listen, there's more where this came from. If you want to see how deep this rabbit hole goes, check out MikeMyashiro.com.